I am George Techmanchub. Time for another Eastern Target Archery Podcast. And today, um, I'm going to tell you, this is sort of a self-indulgent special treat for me because this is one of my favorite people in the sport of archery, a guy that I've known for over 30 years. It is Joe McGlynn, Joseph McGlynn of the United States of America, uh, athlete for the United States in multiple world archery events, as well as continental events like the uh, uh, Pan American Championships, World Field silver medalist from 2004. Um, Joe has come close to meddling in many other events, such as the World Archery Indoor Championships of 2001, probably a bunch of stuff that's not listed on his WA uh, official biography because it uh, doesn't seem to have much info uh, before about 2005, but it is absolutely my pleasure to welcome Joe McGlynn to the podcast. Joe, thanks for joining us from New York City today. Well, thanks for inviting me. It's going to be a good talk. I hope so. I uh, I think every time we've had a talk, it's been a good talk as far as I'm concerned. So <laughs> it's, you know, you're, you're one of the people um, that goes back to my original roots in the sport. You know, both of us uh, living in New York at the time, back in the 80s, and, uh, you know, shooting at a lot of events together over the years. Um, I don't think I ever dreamed when I first met you that we'd both be on a couple of uh, world teams, you know, world championships and world world games. But uh, you were always a super talented guy and um, a lot of dedication to our sport in a lot of ways, because at the time you were employed full time working in the technology sector, but also running a pro shop in the middle of New York City, starting around uh, 94, if I'm not mistaken. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. I've been uh burning the candle at both ends for a long time. For sure. Proline Archery is a pro shop in Queens, New York, uh, not far off the Jamaica line. Kind of, we joke about it being in the middle of John Gotti country, but it really is. Um, and it is sort of a mecca for not just archers in New York City, but, you know, interestingly, and we'll get into this a little bit, uh, you've got a significant segment of international archers from a specific place, don't you? Yeah, yeah, we do. We um, somewhere along the line, we've started to develop a, um, a, a liking with the Bhutanese community. Um, they started to come to our shop and look for some of our services for bow repair and specifically, um, you know, arrow maintenance and, and arrow sales. And, and um, you know, we started to develop a relationship with their unique style of shooting and um it's been, you know, a good relationship over the years now. But let's get back to you for a moment before we talk about Bhutan archery and and uh, the pro shop. When did you start in the sport? Uh, hard to say. I, I started in like 79, maybe 78. Um, uh, somebody had asked me that one time and and I, I found an old JOAD certificate, which yeah. is my yeoman, which is the first at the time when they had a, a yeoman classification that was the first step and that was signed off on april 1st 1979 so i probably started you know shortly before then and do you happen to remember where it was a club called comanche bowman which ironically bowman. was around yeah it was around the corner from my house never knew it was there it was a little club in a basement and uh a friend of mine said you've got to try this and I, I joke with people and I'm like, you know, 
I'm glad he did that for me, you know, that I found archery because I found archery so addictive that, you know, I jokingly say that if I found something else that was, you know, maybe not so pure and pristine, I would be on a different path in my life. Because <laughs> maybe from from the from the moment I let my first arrow go, I was hooked. Literally, it was like a drug. You know, I'll, I'll bet that there's a lot of listeners that have uh, a similar recollection. I can tell you that for me personally, it was a very similar experience. And uh, maybe that's something all of us that have stayed in it so long have in common <clears throat> is that we just, you know, you'd wake up, you'd think about the sport, you'd think about practice, you'd think about what you were going to do that day to work around practice. But, um, you know, like it is for so many people, um, you also have to work. So for quite a while, you were pursuing the sport um, while working too. Yeah, yeah, I was. I was trying to trying to find my way in life and and pursue my passion, you know, with with the bow and arrow. And uh, you know, I, for the most part, it's been very successful. One thing that you know, people that are uh, familiar with New York, it's not that easy to find a place to shoot outdoors. So quite often, you'd go to New Jersey. Uh, for example, um, Jerry Plipchuk's club later on in your career, um, the the trip each way and the expense each way, it, it really mounts up, doesn't it? It does. In a metropolitan area like we are, um, it, it's very hard to find a quality place to practice. And there was really only two in the area. One was Bloomfield Archers in New Jersey and the other one is the Nassau Bowman Archery Club on Long Island. And each has its unique advantages for, you know, wind and things like that, and, you know, learning how to shoot. Um, but the distance traveled and the expense in getting there, you know, you know, it's, it's people look at a map and they're like, oh, it's only about, you know, 12 or 15 miles away. But that distance in New York can take 45 minutes to three hours. Yeah, that's what on I was, traffic. That's what I was alluding to, and not to mention bridge tolls. Oh, yeah. I'm on an island. You know, I tell people that if I got to go to a tournament, I have to get to the mainland. And they look at me funny, and I'm like, no, no, I got to go over three bridges and pay a bunch of tolls and everything else. So there's no easy way for me to, to get to, to the mainland, jokingly, you know? Yeah. So, I'm, you know, that's one of those things that could have damped a lot of people's enthusiasm. I mean, you know... Uh, I remember just uh, talking about the 90s here, for example, you would have to spend maybe 30 bucks in bridge tolls and put all kinds of miles on your on your VW to get to just to practice every uh, every week or several times a week. Yeah, back in the day, it would be one day a week, you know, shooting outside, whether it was in Jersey or on Long Island, you know, we, you know, sometimes I'd be able to get to Long Island on a on a weeknight and shoot till, you know, the sun went down or whatever. But you know, it, it takes time away from the my other um, passion, which is the pro shop. And that you know, is running, something running the range. Yeah, running the range today. So today, pro line archery, uh, as I mentioned, is in in Queens. Um, is that right? It is Queens, not Jamaica, yes. right? Yeah, 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 ja and. Yeah. Well, Jamaica's yeah. part of Queens, so yeah. Right. So I mean, you know what I mean. It's yeah, yeah, that's like saying flushing. I I hear you. <laughs> but hey, it's been a while since I've been back home, you know. <laughs> okay. But uh, 
I would say that uh, one of the motivations you must have had to get involved in the pro shop in the first place was to be able to shoot more regularly, right? Um, it was. You know, I started working there um, to be able to shoot and help out and and learn because, you know, one of my um, early mentors or coaches, you know, was one of the owners. So um, Dave Wenz. So I would, you know, try to glean as much information from him as I could. And then over the years, when the original owners, um, one, one passed away and Dave was the other owner and he, he didn't want to be that involved anymore, um, got a few of us together to form a partnership. And then I became a partner in the business. And then yeah. that just took it to another level. For sure. And um, it's that partnership that largely to a degree, um, I know some of your partners have retired, but in general, um, that that um, core group kept the place running for a long time. And now you're one of the principals there, right? Yeah, correct. And it uh, full-time job uh, plus, right? Because, yeah. uh, you know, there's a lot to running a range and a program. And you have a Joad program there, right? Correct. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so there's a, a there's pretty a, good program running. There's a lot of work to do behind the scenes. So how is it that after all these years, you still find yourself as a finalist at the U.S. Indoor Finals? You find yourself uh, placing pretty well in so many events. Um, what's the key to keeping that fire burning while you're doing all that work, running a shop and uh, running programs? I love archery. I love everything about it. I love Olympic style, bare bow, compound. I just, I love, I just love archery. So my, my passion, you know, I, nobody ever believed how much I practiced because, you know, I, I was able to shoot at a, at a pretty competitive level, working a full-time job, running a pro shop, you know, everything that I did. So practice to me was always quality over quantity. So I never shot a lot of arrows. Um, I used to have this discussion with Guy Kruger and, and, and people in the past, you know, back in the, in the early 2000s when I was shooting really well. You know, they didn't believe that, you know, when I tell them my arrow account, they were like, no, that's impossible. You can't shoot that. Um, but it holds true today. I mean, I don't shoot a lot, but it's the quality, but it's also the, the, the years behind me and the, to a degree, the mental game of knowing that I can do this, you know, I'd still at a pretty competitive level. Absolutely. Uh, earlier this year, you shot really well at uh, Lancaster. Um, as I mentioned, you made it to the finals of the uh, USA archery uh, indoor that took place in Louisville just last week. Um, how'd you end up for our listeners? Uh, uh, tell us about that experience if you can. Yeah, Louisville was fun. Um, this is the second year I qualified for it. Um, previous years, I couldn't go because of COVID restrictions. Because if I went to Louisville, I'd have to shift the shop down for two weeks because of the crazy um, New York travel restrictions. But this year, um, it, it was great. You know, it was, I got there. I shot against Jack. Jack shot great. Um, I tried to put up uh, a good defense. And, um, you know, it, it's funny. You know, after all these years, the nerves still come in and you get the 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 butterflies in your stomach and you get the shakes in your arm a little bit and you try to fight through it. And that's one of the things that I love about the sport. And it keeps me going is that I want to get that, that feeling, you know, when I go to the shoot, I want to get that, you know, 
this means something type of feeling, you know? Yeah. And I've always thought, and I've always heard that if you ever lose that, that that's your sign you know, that maybe, maybe you're not uh, either taking it seriously enough or you don't care anymore. So it's really nice to hear that you still have that uh, thing going on, you know, that, that yeah. we all share, hopefully um, it's, it's a, it's an important part, I think of what keeps us coming back. Um, Absolutely. you know, trying to, trying to beat the challenge every time. So yeah, uh, Jack Williams, um, just a couple points there or a point there. And it was, it was a really close match with, uh, with you and Jack. And, uh, I believe that, uh, just like every other experience you've had, that's another learning experience, another building experience. And, yep. you know, quite, quite frankly, Joe, one of the things that I think has, has helped your longevity just observationally on my end, you've never been a super high poundage guy, right? No, no. My back, like the the most I've ever shot was probably 46 pounds. Right. Um, and then that was, you know, too much for, if you know, I mean, I'm, I'm not a big muscular guy, right? So um, I always found that my sweet spot was around 42. And nowadays, um, you know, we all get a little older. Um, I'm finding that my sweet spot now is 38. And that's where I've been, I've been sticking to 38 pounds. I can still reach 70, um, you know, without, you know, too much trouble. 90 would be um, impossible, but I can still get to 70 and, you know, still put up some, you know, decent scores at 70, but, you know, it works perfect for indoors. It's a, it's a well, great weight. Yeah, absolutely. You know, so many over the years, um, mm -hmm. people like, you know, Jim Pickering, legends of the sport, were shooting around 38 pounds. Um, as you say, it's kind of a sweet spot for indoor but as you also say, you can make it work outdoors if you need to. And I honestly yeah. believe that the experience that you've had over the years, um, understanding wind, understanding conditions, is a big help when you're dropping poundage a bit. You're not as dependent. But you got to still have a really pretty good release to make that work. And, uh, you know, one of the things about you, Joe, that I've noticed over the years, that is a really smooth release that you've always had. Now, it might not look that way to you all the time. But every time I've seen you compete, it's been a smooth shot. And uh, you know, your timing has been pretty consistent for decades, it seems to me. Well, thanks. A lot of people look at my release and, and think the opposite sometimes. But you know, yeah. I, one, of the, one, of, one of the things that I, 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 I talk to people about or people ask me questions about is poundage-wise is you got to shoot a weight that you can control. Like, you know, I can shoot. I can still shoot. 46 pounds but can i control it for 72 hours right right and that that's the thing you know you got to be able to be confident enough that you can control your shot through a length of a tournament and part of that control is endurance or strength yep and different conditions can affect that you know i i remember quite clearly uh, a few years ago i was shooting a tournament in tokyo and I was at my peak poundage and it was probably 105 degrees and it was on a field that didn't have any grass. And I'll tell you what, by the time I got to 30 meters, I was dragging because um, a combination of dehydration and the heat. So you have to also budget for conditions, yes. I think, you know, yeah. there's that factor. It seems to me, though, that um, there's ego involved for a lot of people and, you know, bow weight is sort of a mark of 
uh, I don't know what it is. It's a sort of a mark of courage or something on part of some people. Machismo. Yes, that's it, right? I mean, it, it yeah. really is. You hear people, not everybody, but and they're not always at the top of the podium, but you do hear people talk about, well, I shoot so and such and such weight as if it is a, a badge of honor or something. Uh, at the end of the day, though, shoot what you can control is a very important lesson. Well, yeah, I tell people, I said, I said, shoot, shoot a weight you can control, but tell people you're shooting 10 pounds every day. There you go. <laughs> that takes care of it. Plus it keeps That's them it. puzzled, keeps them puzzled exactly. when they can look at your limb. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Or look at your arrow spine on the target or whatever. Yeah. How's he getting that to tune? <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk about the pro shop a little more. Um, Proline Archery. What's the address? Uh, 9511 101st Avenue, Ozone Park, New York. There you go. So it's, it's like I said, John Gotti country. Um, a lot of good pizza to be found around there too, huh? Yeah. Yeah. So the, the shop, um, I saw you remodeled it uh, a few years ago, um, indoor lanes and, um, you know, you can get 18 meters in there, which is not always the case in an urban pro shop. Um, full service. You have uh, bows, arrows, uh, all the tools needed to maintain either. You have a uh, JOAD program. You have programs for people just coming in to learn. Do you do any of the sort of the, I'm, I'm drawing a blank right now on what it's called, but you know, it's where you so, sort of sell tickets for events to corporate entities and they come in and have team building, stuff like that? Do they? I, I do not do that. Yeah, so I, I do not at this time do anything with a, a team building situation. Um, we're just, we're not set up for that. Um, you know, we're, we're, we're a, a, a small intimate range, you know, I mean, we got 15 lanes and things like that, but we can't break the place up to do team building events. It, it would be disruptive to our normal clients. And, um, it just, for now, that wouldn't work for us. Speaking of normal clients in the past, you've had some pretty noteworthy people come through the door to either learn the sport or to practice. Um, and I know that at the time, those things were kind of confidential, but can you talk a little bit about some of the personalities that everybody's heard of that have shot at ProLine? Um, the, the most famous one is probably going to be uh, Robert De Niro. He came yeah. in to learn how to shoot. And for the, it's, it's, it slips my memory the name of the movie, but he was in a movie with John Travolta. It and, wasn't uh, the, was it the Weatherman or something like that? No, that was no, a different thing. That was a Nicolas Cage movie. Sorry, that was a Nicolas Cage thing. Yeah, and Ni- Nicolas Cage was in, and uh, Dave Antell, who was one of the shooters at the store, um, showed Nicolas Cage kind of the ropes of, of how to shoot a bow and arrow a little bit. Right, um, and then um, Zoe, I can't think of the last name, but Zoe. Was in Zoe Saldana. I yeah yeah she was in and uh, guy was showing her how to shoot for a while. The movie um, the movie you're talking about the 2013 film with Travolta and De Niro was called Killing Season. That's it. Ah, is that longer? Though? 2013. Yeah, yeah, Killing Season. Yep. And uh, you know the 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 uh, apparently the plot of the movie involved Robert De Niro being some sort of ex soldier. And John Travolta's character was out to get him, you know, sort of in a vengeful way. Um, You know, so I guess based on a Bosnian conflict kind of thing. 
And somewhere in the middle of the movie, archery comes into play. I'll just leave it at that. You can see it, I yeah. guess, on IMDb TV. Um, I just looked it up and uh, it's there. So uh, R-rated. So, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, it was. It must have been a little bit surreal to have a guy um, with the body of work of a of a Robert De Niro coming into a pro shop, huh? Yeah, yeah, it was kind of funny, you know, uh, sitting out. You know, it was it was a, a closed door session for him. Yeah. I was going to say uh, it probably wasn't league night, was it? No, no. And, just kind of walking across the street, he's coming and I'm going, wow, this reminds me of a scene from Casino or something, you know, he comes yeah. back with De Niro, he's got the look and everything and nice guy, you know, I mean, he came in to learn and, and, uh, you know, it, yeah, normal, just, normal person. Yeah. Hope, hope he doesn't pull a Neil McCauley and, uh, do a heist on your place or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> no, it was all fine. Yeah. But, you know, one of the things that, uh, does make, Proline unique is, you know, location, location, location. And as a result, you are going to run into people of that sort uh, when they get into our sport for, you know, professional reasons or whatever. Um, and I think that it's very possible that, uh, you know, we'll see more of that in the future with Proline continuing today. Yeah. Well, great. let's let's talk a little bit about this uh, very unique international situation you deal with. As many people know, Bhutan... Um, you know, small country uh, in the Himalayas and archery is a huge part of their culture. Um, and there's a Bhutanese community that either visits or lives in New York, right? Yeah, they live in New York. Um, they, they have a, a large, it's, it's part of their, their heritage or their pastime. So, you know, they, they live in New York and they still practice archery. Um, you know, nobody knows Bhutan archers. They shoot at 150 meters, I think, is their distance. Yeah. And basically, they shoot they shoot bare bow 150 meters at a, a plank of wood in the ground. And basically, if they hit the plank of wood, they get points, and, and they have their own scoring system. And um, they still practice it. They travel to somewhere in, in the middle of Jersey um, to do this because you can't find a place in New York with that type of a of a, of a distance for a range. So they have a place in Jersey that they go, um, you know, regularly, you know, at least once a week, you know, when the weather is good and they, and they practice and they, they shoot bare bow with compounds and, and fingers the, and fingers. Yep. Um, bare bow compound fingers. And that's pretty much it. No stabilizers. Some of them have like a little ornamental weight on their bow and things like that, but not many use, a, a, a stabilizer setup if they do it's a hunting stabilizer like eight inches maybe um but they do this regularly and somehow um you know the, at one point they they were looking for a range to support i guess their equipment and stuff and these couple of guys came in and you know we got to talking over the years and you know we developed their relationship with a lot of the local archers that do this and you know, I, I I repair and fix a lot of compounds for that community along with their arrows. And I ship arrows. You know, it, it's come to a point now they, they shoot. When we talk about arrows, they, they shoot specifically 2213, usually double X75 camo, um, 2114 camo. And every once in a while, they're going to be shooting X7s with Marco veins, which when they started coming cool. in, 
old school Marco veins. I mean, I actually had to track down. I thought the company was closed. Um, Marco's still in business. No you know, kidding. Sh- you know, shout out. Yeah, shout out to Marco. They're still in business. They still produce veins. So, you know, I order veins for, you know, that, that they want. Um, for people who aren't familiar, a Marco vein is a urethane vein that is um, very rubbery. They're actually pretty tough veins, and they, yeah. um, they were kind of the industry standard in the '70s and in the '80s on sort of mass market arrows. If you if you went and bought a a dozen pre-fletched arrows, odds are they'd come with Marco veins, just big old five inch rubbery <laughs> veins. But uh, I mean, what is it about that, Joe? Do you think it's the durability that they like, it's or is the it just durability? They don't like changing think, well, stuff either. Con- well, yeah, it's the durability and the colors. They have, you know, transparent or fluorescent colors, and they're in the like the two and a half or three inch variations. So they don't shoot five inch veins. They they go down to two and a half and three inch, and it's the it's the colors. But I think a lot of it is just the durability that the vein has. Um, not that other veins aren't durable, but this is um, to a degree what the community is kind of established with. Yeah. So. You know, this, it's what it's what they use. I end up ship I ship arrows to to Canada, California, Texas, Jersey. I ship arrows all over the place because they, for whatever reason, the through the community, you know, the, the or the or the network, they know that we can support their needs. So, if your Bhutanese you know, archer, if your Bhutanese archer pro line is the <laughs> go go to supplier, yeah. And they, they only use center rest. So if you remember the center rest. Oh, yeah. Um, all right. So the, where the are you finding rest those? And, well, they still make them. Um, Do they? Yeah, they still center rest was bought by, um, I think, the outdoor, well, the outdoor group. Okay. Right? One of those. Uh, new, yeah, yeah. One of those conglomerates. When they shipped yeah. everything, it's funny. You know, so when they ship the, the products to be made in China, they stopped making left-handed. So they only make a, a right-handed center rest now. They make the flipper also because that's on the Genesis bows. But they stopped making left-handed. And when they made the switch, right, and the, the now that the little uh, cards that they get shipped on say, you know, made in China. The old ones said made in the USA. They were a different color and everything else. For a year and a half, the archers would come in and go, no, I want the ones that are made in the USA. And I was like, they're not available anymore because the ones that are made in China – um, they say don't last as long. Something's different in the material. They said that the ones that are made in China, the plastic on that rest doesn't last as long. Yeah, but I remember getting a phone call from you back. Um, I think I was working at either Hoyt or Easton at the time. And you were uh, looking for a source for some of this stuff. Yeah. I, I, did we, if I recall correctly. We were discussing, did... we were discussing what would be, t- what how we could 3D print a left-handed Right. Center rest. Yeah. Um, but just wasn't wasn't cost effective to do it. And, you know, they're sold on on certain products like the camp pinch tab. Remember the old camp pinch tab? Sure do. That company went out of business. Oh, sure. And yeah. And they went out of business during COVID or before COVID, right around that time frame. And um, that's all they use. So when you when you go and you try to find a replacement form that went through like legacy leathers and they didn't like it because the fur fell off and you know luckily neat makes a similar tab that they like so we're, we're, we're you know so they use a tab from neat now but 
You know, it's when these companies go out of business and the whole community uses that product, you know, it's like earth shattering for them. Sure. Trying, trying to find another um, comparable piece. It's not so easy if you're, if you're sort of um, standardized, shall we say on a specific thing. Exactly. seems to me that uh, there's a lesson there. Maybe Um, somebody, uh, could probably do pretty well coming up with uh, maybe licensing some of these old designs if the if the volume was big enough to support it. But that's part of the problem. Uh, yeah, you know, I mean, a lot of Bhutanese shooters shoot archery and and use these products, but in the big scheme <clears> of things, it's it's not that big of a group. I mean, you know, yeah, I mean, it depends on in there because they do it in, in their country also, yeah. and like to, so the guys that are here, you know. They buy probably every used Hoyt, <clears throat> excuse me, every used Hoyt target bow on the market, and they ship it back to Bhutan. And that's a, that's another quirk, shall we say, of uh, of these Bhutanese barebow shooters is they they only shoot Hoyt compounds. It seems they <clears throat> yeah they like they like the Hoyt shoot throughs because when they draw the bow back, if the arrow falls off the rest, it hits the window. <clears throat> and they're able to, excuse me, <clears throat> they're able to put it back down to the arrow rest pretty easily. Yeah. So the the PSC, um, I think it's called the expression, yeah. is a shoot through window that they like to use. But any Hoyt bow, and if Hoyt started to make the Pro Edge Elite again, it would probably go bonkers in Bhutan because yeah. I get calls, I get calls every week, literally weekly, people looking for Pro Edge Elite. So if Hoyt were to make a, a Pro Edge Elite again, which is a bow they stopped making, what, 2014, 2015, something like that? I can't even remember. Um, Maybe even further yeah. back. Yeah. Yeah, I think um, it's tw- yeah, probably in that 2012 time frame. Yeah, maybe. Mm-hmm. Um, now that I think about it, maybe even 2007 or something like that. But anyway, um, probably they could tool up and make 500 of those suckers <laughs> and sell them all to Bhutan. Yeah, probably. Well, one of the... One of the problems, of course, is that uh, a lot of, and it's not just Bhutan. I mean, Korea, a lot of shooters in Korea still use fast flight. People get settled in on something and they don't like changing it once it works. Yeah. So maybe a little flexibility might be necessary here. Exactly. That'd be good. Going forward, Joe, what do you, what do you see, um, you know, with your long perspective, uh, what do you see with our U.S. programs and where we're headed? It seems to me that, um, you know, USA Archery just added something that I think is potentially quite valuable, and that is a sort of in-between category, somewhere between JOAD and USAT, um, you know, the red team thing that they had started a couple of years ago. Now they've got something just above that, which is sort of a red team preparation group for international events. You know, when you and I were competing in the 80s and 90s, we had a U.S. Olympic Festival to aspire to, you know, which was a big event. Um, you know, you and I have been on a couple of Olympic Festival teams together. You'd make your regional team and then you'd get sent to the central event somewhere in the country like St. Louis or Los Angeles or Denver. Um, we have not had that for a couple decades now, um, but it was a real stepping stone because it got you from the local level to a national level. And then from there, it was, you know, not 
that big of a step to get to national team or international. Um, now I think we're seeing some of that sort of thing. What's your What's your thoughts on on that development program? Well, I, I think it's great. I mean, back in our day, you know, we'll just talk about development programs. Like in New York State, we had the Empire State Games, which you yes, remember, exactly. Yeah. You know, and as as a kid, you know, we'd have regional tryouts in the state. You had the New York City team and the Long Island team, and they took three, and it was great because you'd go and shoot against other people in the state all for free, you know, cost, cost nothing. And then that put me into, Oh, I'm doing good here. Maybe I can do good at Olympic festival. And when, yeah. you know, when I came of age to be able to start the tryout for Olympic festivals, you know, that was a stepping stone. I was like, wow, you know, I, I made Olympic festival. I'm going to make national team. So, you know, it, that, to a degree, it was kind of lost for a decade or so. So yeah, I that's think what I was alluding anything, to, I agree. Yeah, so I, I think anything that provides an opportunity for someone to develop their craft, build their confidence, see that incrementally that they are shooting better and moving up in, in different categories or, 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 or systems, Red System, JOAD, USAT, um, I think is great because this is going to build um, the bigger base of, of, of top shooters. Yeah. We, we, uh, as shooters definitely benefited from the presence of those opportunities. You know, uh, when I medaled at empire state games and, uh, got beat by, I think for the gold medal by one of your contemporaries there at the time, um, that silver medal still inspired me to continue and to, and to work harder. And, uh, I think that that was a very valuable experience. And I think that as we progressed through things like the state championships and, you know, Empire State Games, and then from there, Olympic Festival teams, that was a progression that gave us not just confidence, but also experience to be able to do something with it when we did get to national team or make a, a world field team or a world games team. Mm -hmm. um, sort of a structure that, as you pointed out, had been missing for about 10 years, but now we're seeing... I think a revitalization in that area. And I think that could be very valuable for USA archery. No, no, I was just going to say one of the, one of the things that, you know, when you look at the sport um, that I, I think that they still need to maybe work on is you look at, they have all these levels of, of um, opportunity for kids coming up and they run through, um, you know, grammar school, high school, get into college and, and they're on the different teams and, when life picks up and they're like, Oh, I've got to, I've got to go to work. Now you see a drop off, right. In that age range, right. Where people tend to pick up, they got a job. Now they got a nine to five and, and, and the juggling all these different responsibilities. Um, it would be great if there was something in there, you know, it's always, it's always in the back of my mind that, you know, when, when they, leave college a lot of kids put the bow down right or or it, it's just not a driving force for them at that point and their priorities shift but there's yes you know you know you, you see it because people people get to a certain point and they put the bow down and I always to me i always wonder why that is you know because there's always an opportunity to to shoot somewhere you know it's always been an issue or something I always think about is, you know, why, why do people put the bow down when they, you know, 
graduate from college or 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 do something else. Well, it might be that they're not just as not quite as addicted as you and I have been, Joe. Maybe that was part of it. <laughs> Could be. You know, it's interesting because you see the same thing. Uh, Japan is a very good example of exactly what you just brought up. Uh, kids pick up archery in high school, typically in Japan. Uh, they'll shoot through university, and then it's like a light switch. Click. They'll stop shooting. Um, there's a few uh, percentage that go to shoot on what's called shakaijin events. Uh, shakaijin is a Japanese word that means productive member of society. Uh, in other words, a working adult. And then uh, they'll come back to archery when they've retired. But in between, very few uh, continue to shoot. Um, opportunities to keep the sport going are tougher there because of the kind of working hours that people put in, uh, the lifestyle that that engenders. Um, yeah. Most of the shakai gene shooters are actually on company teams and, and that sort of thing. So maybe, and that's what I'm driving at, maybe what we need is to figure out a way to have a company team structure in this country that would provide for opportunities where, you know, you could have uh, a team from, you know, uh, pick a company. Uh, imagine that potential if if that were something that could possibly be created you know that would be cool it could be uh you'd have to come up with a program and a plan but that sounds like it's something that could be right up the alley of usa archery maybe you and i should have a talk with uh, rocket rod <laughs> absolutely another of our contemporaries yeah yeah get him and um logan to work on it Right. Yeah, one of Logan Wild uh, is uh, is working for USA Archery now as as sort of their fundraiser slash uh, sponsor uh, recruiter, and uh, yeah. been doing a pretty good job from everything I've seen. Cool. So who knows? That could that could absolutely be a possibility. Well, one of the greatest things about this sport for me, of course, has been making friends over the years, Joe, and you've been one of the closest ones. And I really appreciate you taking the time today to. Uh, join us on the podcast and share your thoughts with us. I, I want to talk to you some more about specifics, like what it is like to, you know, run a program like a Joad program in your environment, that sort of thing, and get advice for shooters as they get older as to how to continue to remain competitive like you are, continue to be. Um, my hat's off to you, buddy, because it's hard. It's not easy. Yeah, it, it's, you know, you, you, you got to want it. Um, you know, that, that's one of the biggest things is that you got, you got to want to still, you know, do it. One of the things with shooting, uh, you know, back in the day, you know, when, you, when I was burning the candles at both ends is I, I loved archery, but you would, you can check life at the door when you walk into the archery range yes. and, you know, it's, it's a stress reliever. And I hear that from a lot of my customers, you know, they, they, they come in after work and they, enjoy shooting and they say you know what all of my troubles mean nothing why i'm shooting i can just think about shooting i'm not thinking about work and things like that they, they, a lot of people call it their stress reliever it's absolutely the case and i think that you know let's face it you can get some stress from archery if you <laughs> if you take it too seriously like we have yeah but uh, it's a different kind of stress. It's, it's not uh, existential stress. It's uh, self-imposed, shall we say. And, exactly. you know, it's one of the brilliant things about our sport is you can continue to pursue it, but 
folks, take a tip from Joe McGlynn. Don't overbow yourself. Uh, you'll you'll extend your career. Absolutely. Well, Joe, again, I want to thank you for joining us and uh, look forward to talking to you again soon. Uh, taking the time from New York on your way to the gym, in fact, which is, by the way, perhaps another thing to keep in mind is that at the age of 53, uh, Joe is yeah. headed to the gym and, you know, still one of the most competitive shooters in the country. So uh, hats off to you, my friend. All right. Well, George, um, I appreciate the time and what I tell all of my kids that are in the Joe programs have fun. <laughs>